Improbable Research Podcast number 205. Today, we'll talk about research involving color preference in the insane. Can consumers recognize the taste of their favorite beer? Effect of audience boredom on power-hungry persons. You never sleep alone. Some improbable medical studies. Extracting the wrong tooth. And telephones for animals. Yes, all of that. This, this is Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh, then think. Real research about anything and everything from everywhere. Research that's maybe good or bad, important or trivial, valuable or worthless. Compiled for you by the producers of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. I'm Mark Abrams, editor of the magazine Annals of Improbable Research and founder of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. In this episode, we're resurrecting things that many of you never got the chance to hear, and we intend to make lots of new stuff. We can really use your help on that. We've started a Patreon to fund it. If you become an improbable donor on our Patreon, you can get special access to improbable things, early access to episodes, even copies of the Annals of Improbable Research. Who knows what else? Details are at www.patreon.com slash improbable research. For details about everything that we're talking about today, visit our website at improbable.com. Color Preference in the Insane, with improbable dramatic readings by Jean Burko Gleason. In the summer of 1931, Siegfried E. Katz of the New York State Psychiatric Institute and Hospital published a study in the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology called Color Preference in the Insane. Assisted by a Dr. Cheney, Katz tested 134 hospitalized mental patients, asking them about their favorite colors. For simplicity's sake, he limited the testing to six colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet. No black, no white, no shades of gray. He wrote, These colors, rectangular in shape, one and one half inches square, cut from Bradley colored papers, were pasted in two rows on a gray cardboard. They were three inches apart. The colors were numbered haphazardly and the number of each color placed above it. The cardboard was presented to the patient and he was asked to place his finger on the number of the color he liked best. After he had made the choice, he was asked in a similar manner for the next best color and so on. Some of the patients cooperated well and made six choices. Others, Katz reported, quickly lost interest and made only one, two, or three. Blue was the most popular color. Men in the aggregate then favored green, but women patients were divided on green, red, or violet as a second choice. Patients who had resided in the hospital for three or more years were slightly less emphatic about blue. Katz says that these long-term guests were those with the most marked mental deterioration. Their preference as a group shifted somewhat towards green and yellow. Those of longest tenure, though few in number, had a slightly elevated liking for orange. The report is packed with tidbits that beg, even now, for further analysis. Blue. Blue was given first preference by 38% of schizophrenics and manic depressives, versus 42% of other patients. Green. Green was first choice among 16% of schizophrenics, 9% of manic depressives, and 13% of other patients. Red. Red was the first choice for 16% of manic depressives, 12% of schizophrenics, and 15% of other patients. It was the second choice of 22% of manic depressives, 18% of schizophrenics, and 13% of other patients. Orange and yellow. Orange and yellow gained the highest best-liked rating among manic depressives, green among schizophrenics, and violet among other patients. Katz foresaw practical applications for his research. He suggested that... In the furnishings of living quarters, the selection of colors pleasing to special groups of patients might be worth consideration. 
Consciously or not, hospital staff seem to have followed Dr. Katz's insights in fashioning their own personal at-work appearance. The evocatively named Braggard Medical Uniforms, a New York firm founded in 1933, now publishes a list of the most popular uniform colors. The list currently is topped by, in order, Royal Blue, Dark Gray, which, alas, Katz excluded from his survey, Dark Green, and red. Jean, a question. Do you have a favorite color? Oh, yes. What is it? It's blue. Lapis blue. What does that say about you according to this? I think it means that uh, I'm uh, not quite all there. I like blue. We're going to look at an experiment about beer. This was done in 2012. Chris, what's the name of the study? Probably not the best lager in the world. Effect of brands on consumers' preferences in a beer-tasting experiment. One more time, please, just in case someone missed that. Probably not the best lager in the world. Effect of brands on consumers' preferences in a beer-tasting experiment. Who wrote this study? Matteo Maria Galizzi from the London School of Economics and Christian Garavaglia from the University of Milano, Bicocca. What do they say this is about? The first objective is to study the ability of young consumers to identify their preferred beer. The second is to explore the role played by brands. Young consumers doesn't mean three-year-olds. I think they're talking about university students. When they say the role played by brands, what do they mean? I think they mean, do you like or dislike something more? Is your preference shifted when you know what brand it is? Heineken beer versus Miller beer versus... If you say that Miller beer is your favorite, would you actually pick it out of a lineup when people poured you Miller and three other equivalent beers? Or do you just like Miller because you like the Miller brand? Before they get into the details, they give us a little summary of what they did. The first stage was a blind tasting, while in the second stage, beers were presented together with the bottles. Our main results are the following. Consumers seem unable to identify their preferred lager beer in a blind taste. After brands are revealed, average evaluations change. The wording on that is a little bit uh, esoteric, let's say, but we'll get into the details in a minute. Lager beer, L-A-G-E-R. What is lager beer compared to other kinds of beer? I think what they mean here is a relatively light blonde beer that doesn't have a lot of hops in it. Although acquaintances who know a lot more about beer than I do tell me that there are two types of beer, which are fermented by different yeast, lager and ale. Okay, so we don't know. I have no idea. Let's get into the details here. They tell us what they did in this experiment. In each stage, subjects were presented three glasses of beer and asked to taste the beers and to express their evaluations for each beer in a 0 to 100 scale. What does that mean, a 0 to 100 scale? I think they were going to rate the beer how much they liked it from 0 to 100, 100 being high, presumably. They tell us a little bit here about the people who were being studied. A vast majority of subjects, 74%, liked lager beer, and a majority, 67%, preferred bottle beer. From the survey, it also turned out that preferred brands of beer were, in this order, Heineken, Becks, Peroni Nastro Azzurro, Corona, Stella Artois, Carlsberg, Guinness, Moretti, Ceres, Bud, Tenant Super, Menabrea, followed by a fringe of minor brands. After a couple more pages of description, the researchers tell us a little bit about how they carried out this experiment. All sessions were held in a large room, equipped with 50 individual desks and a small separate kitchen, located just in front of the main entrance of the university. Each subject was accommodated in a separate desk, far away from the other participants. On each desk, there was a pad with three circles on which to leave the glasses of beer, a sheet of paper with the instructions for the experiment, a pen, and some unsalted crackers. A rather dramatic setting, isn't it? A building in a university, 50 separate desks. At each separate desk, an individual with glasses of beer, a sheet of paper, a pen, and some unsalted crackers. Why unsalted crackers? Presumably as a palate cleanser, so they can get the beer taste out of their mouth before trying the next one. It sounds like a fairly standard setup for a taste test, and students hang around universities, so it's a good way to find volunteers. You ever been involved in this kind of taste test? I have. I've done a couple of taste tests. Were there unsalted crackers? There were. Desks? Were there desks? There were no desks. 
pens. This was very low rent tasting. We just stood in my kitchen and tried stuff. No pads of paper, no pens. There was a lot of talking and discussion. Did you write a report and publish it in a scientific journal afterwards? I did not, but I did design a statistical test for it. Why? Because I actually wanted to see how accurate we were. What were you tasting? Octopus cooking temperatures. Would you mind telling a little more detail about that? Sure. Um, the question we wanted to ask was, what's the best way to cook octopus? So we cooked one piece of the same octopus at 85 degrees for two hours and another piece at 75 degrees for five hours. And then we tasted them side by side. And? It turns out the 75 degree five hour octopus was better. And everyone agreed on that. We tasted it blind and in fact, we did a threefold testing where you taste one, the other, and then the first again, and you don't know which way round those are. So if you have palate fatigue or if you're overwhelmed with this, it doesn't count so much. Having been through this on your own, are you finding uh, there's a rising level of excitement in you as you read about this beer tasting experiment? No, there's a surprising amount of criticism in me as I read about this beer experiment. Well, let's continue on here with the details. There's a section in here in which they describe what they call the stages of the experiment. In the first stage of the experiment, subjects tasted the three beers blindly. All beers were presented simultaneously to subjects, already poured in three glasses with no further information. They give a name, a sort of fake name to each beer. They don't give it its real name. Here in this paper, they call one beer H, another B, and the other C. So beer H, beer B, and beer C. Go on, please, Chris. In the second stage of the experiment, subjects were then presented with the three HBC beers poured in glasses and paired with a bottle behind each glass. In order to convey the more complete and thorough impression from brand-specific extrinsic information, we paired glasses with real bottles of HB and C beers that could actually be found in supermarkets. What do they mean when they say we paired glasses with real bottles of the beers? They put the bottle that the beer came from next to the glass that they were asking people to taste. So people would pretty naturally make the assumption that this beer in this glass came from the bottle that's right behind that's the glass. Right. And they're saying that they actually put the right bottle next to the right glass of beer. Are they saying that they put the right bottle next to it? They're not, actually. They just say, we paired glasses with real bottles of beer that could actually be found in supermarkets. Mm, this is potentially a deceptive thing they're doing here. It could be. The plot might thicken here. Any ethical questions being raised here? Not at all. It's a long report. We move on now. Now we've got some data here to look at from their experiment. Table 1 reports the average evaluations of the three beers expressed in the first stage, conditional to the subject's preferred beer. Could you describe just in a quick general way what Table 1 looks like? It's on the same page here. It's a column of numbers and a rating for each kind of beer. And there's a column for ratings of people divided by which one of the beers they'd already said was their favorite. Does the, does the table look impressive before you actually look at the details? No. It looks abstruse. It looks confusing a little bit. They uh, analyze it in what they call detail. Tell us what they say here. As it can be seen, consumers do not seem able to spot their preferred beer in a blind taste. Only less than half of the consumers whose preferred beer was B gave higher evaluations to B in the blind taste. This proportion was even lower for the other two brands, where only one consumer every three, or even in every eight, gave the highest evaluation to his or her most preferred brand. So what they're saying is that people can't spot their favorite when they don't have the bottle in front of them. They can't tell the difference. So it looks, from what they're saying, that this experiment turned up something interesting. Yeah, it suggests that consumers, or at least the consumers they study, don't actually know what their favorite brand tastes like. They buy it because of the brand, not because of the taste. After a couple more pages of description, they get to what seems to be the heart of the matter. It can be seen that the evaluations expressed by subjects appear to significantly change following exposure to brands. The effect is more significant for beer H. Why beer H? I don't know. While for beers H and C, subjects seem to increase their evaluations after being exposed to brands, a curious result relates to the negative brand effect of beer B. We believe this result may be due to a less appealing image of brand B. 
In other words, if somebody thinks they were drinking brand B, then suddenly they don't like what they were drinking. That's what it appears to be. Brand B apparently is a low rent beer. And a number of pages later, we finally get down to the end of the report where they try to tell us what it all means. Our experimental evidence seems to suggest that exposure to extrinsic information such as brands... What does extrinsic mean? Outside. Not about the beer itself, but packaging or information about the beer. Not just the taste of the beer, but exactly. things other than how the beer tastes. Outside of its physical characteristics. Okay. Start that sentence over again, now that I've impolitely interrupted you, as I so often do. Our experimental evidence seems to suggest that exposure to extrinsic information, such as brands, is able to induce subjective perception of sensorial characteristics, even when these are not intrinsically conveyed by direct tasting experience. Well, that's impressive language, uh, isn't it? People are affected by marketing, is what they're saying, I think. Ah, they took a lot more words to say that than you took. Well, the simpler the message, the more verbose you have to be to make it sound impressive. They've got one last little bit of wisdom that they impart here. The effect was significantly stronger for their most preferred brands. What do we make of this? Does this change your life, having now gone through and looked at this report? Well, one of the things that I wonder, and we've done this before in a couple of blind tastings, is whether the subjects can actually tell the difference between all the beers. And you start with that. And there are tests designed to tell you that. So you give people three beers, and two are the same and one's different. And you ask them to rank them, or you ask them to find the odd one out. And you see if people can actually taste the difference. And you'd be surprised at how many people can't tell. Not just with beer, but with a lot of things that are actually quite similar. Once you take them out of the pack, people just can't tell. And so it's not that people might not have the capacity to spot their favorite. They might not be able to tell the difference between a lot of the blonde beers out there because they just can't tell the difference. Chris, a personal question here. You are a very good cook and a wonderful host. My wife and I have enjoyed your hospitality many times and tremendously enjoyed the food. At least we think we did. Now, <laughs> some doubts are coming in after reading this report, but all of my memories are it was wonderful food. Knowing about this kind of uh, discovery that we're reading about here, has that ever figured into what you do as a host when you cook food for guests? I don't know about it as a host. Certainly as a cook, I think about things like this a lot. And I think about tasting things. We all have our biases. I certainly have mine. And in fact, there's an awful lot of um, cooking outlet out there, cooking magazines, cooking programs that purport to test things very carefully to actually tell you which one's the best way to do something or the best product to buy for a certain use. Because it's very easy to just go by brand, but that's not necessarily the best product or the best way to do something. You've just opened a door here. The whole question of how do you even test this stuff? How do you even figure out whether it's possible to do a good test? This is not a simple question. No, actually, that's what experimental design is. There's a deeper point here, which is you have to come up with an approach that asks the question you're trying to answer. And that's when, when you're doing a scientific experiment, you have to really, really hone that question and make it more and more specific. So is the question, can these people tell the difference between beer A and beer B? Or can they tell the difference between any beer? There's no point in asking someone if they can spot their favorite beer if they can't taste the difference between any beers. There's an old essay written by one of the big names in statistics, one of the British statistics people whose name I'm forgetting at the moment. It was called- Fisher? Maybe Fisher. It's called A Lady Tasting Tea. I think that was Fisher. It's- uh, It's- Might have been student. It describes how you might go about trying to figure out whether to believe somebody who tells you that they have the ability to tell the difference between two things. They say, you meet a lady, this is Britain in the mid-20th century, so they say a lady, you meet a lady who tells you she can tell the difference between a cup of tea where somebody added the milk first and a cup of tea where somebody added the milk after they put the tea in the cup. She tells you she can always tell the difference by tasting it. This essay goes into enormous detail about how tough it is for you to go about figuring out whether she's correct or whether she's deluding herself 
or diluting you anyway. It's a nice, nice journey. And it's really complicated, though. A lot of this is actually true. This is hard to do in the same way as when people say, I can do this, or I have this skill, or I can sense this or sense the other thing, whether it's a cup of tea, or if I can foretell which card you're going to draw from a deck, actually testing that and saying, hey, look, this is equivalent to chance, you're doing no better than you'd expect under random chance is non-trivially difficult. I mean, that's what we do as scientists. Your job is to say, is this consistent with just a random event or does it look not random? Statistics ain't easy, huh? No, and they're also very misunderstood because we like nice, clean answers, black and white, and most things are this spectrum of gray where sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. And we're not really set up as a species to accept probability very easily. Well, look, this is a long discussion. So at this point, I think we're faced with two choices. We can either continue discussing this at great length here, or we can do what's almost mandatory, the traditional thing, which I suggest we do. Let's go out for a beer. I agree to that. Cheers. Cheers. The effect of audience boredom on power-hungry persons with improbable dramatic readings by Jean Burko Gleason. People with a tremendous drive for power sometimes encounter obstacles. An experiment measured what happened when power-driven people gave speeches to an audience that responded with blatant, deliberate acts of boredom. The researchers, Eugene Fodor and David Wick of Clarkson University in Potsdam, New York, wrote up the details in a blandly titled monograph called Need for Power and Affective Response to Negative Audience Reaction to an Extemporaneous Speech. Could you translate that phrase into something less uh, gooey? People's need for power and their emotional response when the audience gives negative reactions to their speech, to a speech that they're giving. Okay, that's only slightly gooey. It's much better. It's not much better, huh? Well... It's a long set of words. Fodor and Wick found some power seekers, and for comparison, some power avoiders. They used a standard psychological method to discriminate these people from those sorts who were merely indifferent to or accepting of power. They asked each volunteer to write little stories about a set of pictures. The pictures showed... One, seven men around a table. Two, man with cigarette behind woman. Three, architect at desk. Four, two women in lab coats in laboratory. Five, ship captain. And six, trapeze artists. The volunteers' stories revealed, at least in theory who unconsciously craved power and who did not. Having selected their test subjects, Fodor and Wick asked each to give a three-minute persuasive speech to an audience. A wee special audience it was, one woman and one man, specially trained and rehearsed for the occasion. Fodor and Wick predicted that power-motivated participants would exhibit higher levels of electromyographic activity in the brow supercilii when confronted by a negative audience reaction to their speech. Higher levels of electromyographic activity in the brow supercilii. What is electromyographic well, activity? It's, it's, like, it's like a, um, it's some kind of, of machine uh, or apparatus that is going to measure the electrical uh, impulses coming out of this particular part of what I presume is the forehead of the people that were giving the the talk. And that's what brow supercilii. That's means? what it sounds like to me. Again, it's not a term I know, but that's that's what it says, isn't it? it seems like a either a very useful or completely useless phrase. Electromyographic activity in the brow supercilii. Yeah. In doing this, the researchers relied on an established method, trusting that the electrical activity level in the forehead frowning muscles would reliably indicate a person's anxiety level. For some speech givers, the audience showed interest, but for others, not. Fifteen seconds into the speech, the young woman crossed her legs and began looking at her hands. The young man began to shift in his chair. The woman continued looking around. The man looked at his watch, then briefly gaped out the window. 
At approximately one minute into the speech, the actors looked at each other and raised their eyebrows. Then they looked back at the participant delivering the speech. Both continued to shift their gaze to their hands or the floor, rarely looking at the participant. Approximately two and a half minutes into the speech, near the end, the woman gave up a visible sigh. The actors continued to look around for the remaining 30 seconds. The man, for his part, twiddled his thumbs a lot, looked at the clock a few times, yawned at specific junctures. The results of the experiment. Under this kind of duress, the power-hungry persons, compared to the non-power-hungry individuals, had noticeably greater eyebrow-furrowing muscle electrical activity. Fodor and Wick end their report with an eyebrow-slash-anxiety-raising cautionary note for anyone who aspires to leadership. They specifically mention politicians and labor management negotiators. The findings suggest that certain occupations may pose repeated exposures to stress of a kind that can threaten cardiovascular health for persons high in power motivation. Gene, you are a famously good and interesting public speaker. However, when you're sitting in the audience and the speaker is obviously somebody who thinks highly of himself or herself and is a terrible speaker, how do you make that known to the speaker? Well, as I think I may have said to you in an earlier conversation, I would not go out of my way to make it known to the speaker. I would simply tune out and do what I do, you know, read my email or something. But I found myself doing that quite a lot lately. You think they don't notice when they, they see do you, the they, famous professor sitting in the front of the audience reading your email? Well, they do notice. And what happens then? Well, what, do they, what could they do about it? I mean, they have to go on with What do you mean, they, what could they do about it? Well, they're not going to come out and hit me. I mean, you know, they just better go ahead and do what they do. Do you notice that they begin to get either anxious or angry? I don't. I, I'm not paying attention. I'm not paying attention to them, so I don't know. Do you but, ever, you know, if they're so boring, I, I can't... It's not, I don't have to stay there. I don't have to pay attention to them. How often does this happen? It happens fairly often. How often does this happen? It happens now and again. In the course of, say, a year, how many? It happens quite a few times. Same people usually up on the stage? Well, no, but you know, you do find that you go to things and what happens is that it gets less interesting as people drone on. You can be engaged for a while, but then you maybe tune out a bit. Do you have any recommendations for people sitting in the audience when somebody is obviously going to drone on and on? If the person is there for an appointed event, they're not going to suddenly stop and quit because the audience is bored. So there's nothing but you can do. You can't hurry them up. You, you just have to tolerate it and get through it as best you can. But you have to remember that it's your life too. So you can't just give people your life if they're boring. Taking a half-wild guess, how many hours or how many days of your life have been wasted sitting in the audience while somebody droned on and on up on a stage? Oh, that's a terrible question. It's probably months, if not years. Do you hold a grudge? No, but there are some speakers I know who go over their time, and I wouldn't go out of my way to go hear them. I mean, I know of at least some people who, when they're scheduled to give a talk, never stop. Oh, who? I'm not going to tell you, but there's a famous anthropologist who does that. Male or female? Female. Tall or short? <laughs> from the other side of the country, not from around here. We're in the Boston area right now. We're in the Boston area, so I'm not talking about the west coast of the United States. Someplace on the west coast, there's an anthropologist who talks to it. I probably said too much already. You think there's only one? Oh, there are probably some famous examples. Well, if they're famous, everybody knows about Maybe them. Maybe they do. Anyway, I won't go on with this. Light hair, dark hair? I'm not, I will not say anything more about this person. I won't. Stylish dresser or not? I'm not, I'm not going to tell you anything more about her. It's bad enough that I've said as much as I've said, even though it's true. How does she feel about you? I, I haven't, maybe she thinks I'm terribly boring. I don't know. It's okay with me if she does. I, I'm not on bad terms with her. I just would not go out of my way to go hear her give a talk because if she's scheduled to talk for an hour, she will talk for two. 
I think maybe people are better off not going to anthropology lectures no, because they might I encounter love this anthropology. person. There's a wonderful anthropological things to go to. Except when this person is speaking. That's correct. You never sleep alone. With improbable dramatic readings by Maggie Letvin. Nobody sleeps alone. This has little or nothing to do with morals. It's simply a law of nature, a fact. Census after census finds that with or without the niceties of formal marriage, dust mites are the great silent majority in every bed. Professor J.E.M.H. van Brunswijk of Eindhoven Technical University in the Netherlands took a good long scientific look at who's in bed with what. Von Brunswijk discussed all the dirty details at a meeting of the Benelux Congress of Zoology in 1994. She wrote a study about it with the title, A Bed Ecosystem. Nature does not stop at the windowsill. Ecosystems are also present within homes. Probably most well-known is the house dust ecosystem, present in textile furnishings such as mattresses, pillows, duvets, blankets, carpeting, rugs, and textile-covered furniture. Above all, or at least in the middle of everything, is the bed. Your bed. A bed is a crowded place. Even without the people, it's full of biomass. Yes, in a word, biomass. Van Braunschweig wrote that this biomass consists of domestic mites, mainly of the family Hyrocleophidae, and domestic fungi, mainly the genera Apsurphilus, Penicillium, and Wallemia with a smaller contribution of insects, spiders, and bacteria. Mostly, it's mites. This was exciting news. In the decades since von Brunswijk's charming public pillow talk, many other scientists have taken up the practice of bedroom biological voyeurism. Christoph Solars of the Silesian Medical Academy in Katowice, Poland, conducted a study of three beds in Sosnowicz, Upper Silesia. This was, Solars reported in the Annals of Agricultural and Environmental Medicine in 1997, the first such investigation ever done in Poland. The city of Sosnowicz had at that time a human population of about 250,000. The number of dust mites was anyone's guess. Solars counted mite population samples at different times throughout the year. He then compared these with previously published data from beds in the Czech Republic, the Netherlands, Romania, England, Spain, India, Hawaii, and elsewhere. Dust mites are not everyone's cup of tea, even though they might be in everyone's cup of tea if the cup's allowed to sit long enough. For some people, dust mites lack interest. Sleeping with them is as far as most folks are willing to go. For the new enthusiast, though, there's plenty to learn and no end of good things to read. Anyone who enjoys poetry, even a mite, might do well with H.R. Sesse and R.M. Dobson's poetically titled 1972 paper, Studies on the Mite Fauna of House Dust in Scotland, with special reference to that of beddings. For the mite lover who detests poetical titles, there is Wojciech Witolinski, Jacek Daubert, and Manfred Walzel's 1992 prose masterpiece, Morphological Adaptation for Precopulatory Guarding in Astigmatic Mites. Morphological Adaptation for Precopulatory Guarding in Astigmatic Mites is not all dry and fusty, once you get past the title. Inside, it's got some almost poetical passages. Listen to these. Partners are fixed together through the male adenal suckers cooperating with unique protrusions of the female tritonymph dorsal cuticle. At the periphery of the sucker, a delicate and flexible cuticle forms a large collar. The peripheral cuticular collar is considered to be a functional adaptation for a better sealing of the sucker on the rough dorsum of the tritonymph. What, you might wonder, is an astigmatic mite? I leave to you the pleasure of looking that up. Acherologists, scientists who study ticks and mites, are, like the objects of their study, happy to gather in groups. Acherologists, in search of bed partners, inhuman or otherwise, convene each year at the International Congress of Acherology. You can join them if you wish. The conference organizers offer some welcoming words. 
We look forward to meeting anyone with a keen interest in mites and or ticks. One of the people you might meet there is Professor Van Braunsweig, author of that information-packed study of bed ecology. If you do meet her, it would be proper to offer congratulations, in addition to whatever else you need to express or offer. Professor von Braunsweig received the 2007 Ig Nobel Prize in the field of biology for her census of our, yours, mine, everybody's bedmates. You might ask her to autograph a copy of one of her most popular papers. It's in Dutch, and it's called House, Bed, and Beasties. Improbable Medical Review Here's a look at some medical studies about improbable diagnoses, techniques, and research, with dramatic readings by Richard Baguley. Hazard, sneezed upon by a walrus. A unique case of human ophthalmic acariasis, which means irritation due to infestation by mites, caused by orthohalarachne attenuata, by James P. Webb, Jr., Dean P. Furman, and Samuel Wang, published in the Journal of Parasitology in 1985. The authors from several institutions in California report, Recently, a single specimen of orthohalarachne attenuata was removed by an ophthalmologist from the lower part of the ocular iris of a 35-year-old Caucasian male. It was identified as a teneral adult female of O. attenuata, a mite known to parasitize the respiratory tracts of fur seals, sea lions, and walruses. Recollections by the patient of his recent visit to SeaWorld included standing close to an exhibit of living walruses, which he recalled were frequently spitting and snorting, and it was not long after leaving this exhibit that he remembered becoming aware of an eye irritation. The usual mode of host-to-host transmission by orthohalarachne attenuata is thought to be accomplished by active larvae that crawl or are sneezed from one animal to another. The dislodgement from the nasal passages of the specimen collected from the patient's eye may be correlated with its recent molting from the deuteronymphal stage. The time periods during and immediately following molting are usually the most precarious for mites and other arthropods. Expulsion by host snorting or sneezing may have occurred before the newly molted mite was able to adequately attach to its intranasal tissue. This is the first known record of human acariasis involving a species of halarachnid mites. Other situations involving these acarines, or insects, may be more common than the records indicate. Medical training as adventure, wonder, and adventure ordeal. A dialogical analysis of affect-laden Pedagogy by Anne Madel and Paul Sullivan, published in the journal Social Science and Medicine in 2010. The authors at the University of Leeds and the University of Bradford write in a style that reeks of adventure. Our purpose is to examine the possibility of Bactinian dialogical analysis for understanding students' experiences of medical training. 23 interviews were conducted with 11 British medical students intercalating in psychology. 40 emotional resonant key moments were identified for analysis. Our analysis illustrates students' use of the professional genre to present their training as emotionally neutral. However, we show how medical training can be framed in more unofficial and effective-laden ways in which threshold moments of crisis are presented as space-time breaches characteristic of the genres of adventure wonder and adventure ordeal. This effect was often depotentiated in the narratives through brief allusion to the professional genre. This cycling between genres suggests that the students were searching for an appropriate way in which to frame their experiences, a central dilemma being the extent to which medical training makes sense within an intermediate and effect-laden or future-orientated and effect-neutral pedagogy. Finally, we identify how consultants are an important aspect of the effective experience of medical training. Extracting the Wrong Tooth. Here are several medical reports about gaping holes in the practice of dentistry. The Case of the Wrong Tooth, 1991, by Gerald. The Case of the Wrong Tooth, by Lawrence Gerald and Mary Romeo, published in the American Journal of Orthodontics and Dentofacial Orthopedics in October 1991. The authors in Massapequa, New York, report... 
Without breaking stride, the patient was told that an important personal call had to be made and we would be with her momentarily. A call was placed to the surgeon. He was informed of the situation and asked in Anglo-Saxon verbiage how he could have done what he did since he was familiar with our office routine and with the extraction forms that we use. He said that the patient was fairly certain that the premolar he removed was indeed the intended sacrificial odontome. He said he asked her if she knew which one it was, and she responded, I think this one. He asked if she was sure, and she responded, pretty sure. Unbelievable. He was told that it might be a wise idea for him to notify his malpractice carrier of the incident, as there were no easy solutions to this problem. Wrong Tooth Extraction, Ethics, in 1998, by Gerald. Ethics Case Analysis, The Extraction of the Wrong Tooth, by Gary Chiodo, Susan Tolley, and Lawrence Gerald, published in the American Journal of Orthodontics and Dentofacial Orthopedics in 1998. The authors report, Withholding the fact that the wrong tooth was extracted encumbers the family's decision about how to proceed with their future care. Wrong Tooth Extraction, Education, 2004, by Chang. Effectiveness of an educational program in reducing the incidence of wrong site tooth extraction by Hao Hong Chang, Zhang Jer Li, Shijun Cheng, Puo Zhen Yang, Liang Jun Han, Ying Shun Kuo, Wang Han Lan, and Sang Han Kok. Published in the journal Oral Surgery, Oral Medicine, Oral Pathology, Oral Radiology, and Endodontology in 2004. The authors at National Taiwan University Hospital and National Taiwan University explain, In view of the complex therapeutic and medico-legal problems associated with erroneous extraction, this complication deserves more attention. The actual incidence of wrong site tooth extraction is unknown. Wrong Tooth Extraction, Root Cause Analysis, 2010. Wrong Tooth Extraction, Root Cause Analysis by Oren Peleg, Nabot Givot, Tali Halamashi Shani, and Shlomo Tacher, published in a journal called Quintessence International in 2010. The authors at Tel Aviv University and the Medical Risk Management Company in Tel Aviv, Israel, report... A total of 54 insurance claims for wrong tooth extractions were reported and evaluated by Medical Consultants International from 1993 to 2004. Data were collected and analyzed. Results. General practitioners performed 72% of the extractions. 49% of the referring clinicians were orthodontists. 74% of the errors were made during extraction, and 77% of the errors were made in polyclinics. Conclusions. Errors during treatment and poor communication among clinicians led to extraction of the wrong teeth. This can be avoided by greater caution on the part of the extracting clinician when following the treatment plan. Wrong Tooth Extraction Experience, 2011, with a nod to Chang. Experience of Wrong Site Tooth Extraction Among Nigerian Dentists by Wasio L. Adeyemo. Olabisi H. Odorino, Akanbi C. O. Olojedi, Aziz A. Fashina, and Adashina O. S. Ayodele, published in the Saudi Dental Journal in 2011. The authors at the University of Lagos, Nigeria, report, In the present study, 13% of the respondents reported having extracted a wrong tooth. However, 55% of these respondents were aware of a colleague who had extracted a wrong tooth. This implies that wrong tooth extraction is not an uncommon event in the studied environment. While some authors believe experience may play a role in the incidence of wrong site surgery, Chang et al., 2004, others, Lee et al., 2007, believe otherwise. Telephones for Animals, with an improbable dramatic reading by Melissa Franklin. A telephone for domestic animals, that's the official description, a telephone for domestic animals was invented and patented by Mark Kroll of Simi Valley, California in 2010. 
Here are some details from that patent. U.S. Patent Number 7654230. By the way, one thing you may notice is the repeated use of the word teaching. The inventor, Mark Kroll, seems to have a fondness for using that word teaching in an unusual way. A large number of individuals have mammalian pets in their homes. These are typically dogs or cats. When the pet owners are away at work, they often would like to communicate with their pets. Similarly, the pets often would like to communicate with their owner. Summary of the invention. The gist of this invention is a practical telephone for mammalian pets. The major teaching of this invention is a telephone that can be called by a human from a remote location in such a way that the animal can answer the phone. Another teaching of the invention is a phone that can be dialed by a mammalian pet to a program number, which will typically be the office number of the owner. Other significant objects of the invention are a domestic mammalian phone that will release a human scent to the animal by remote command. Another teaching is an apparatus to allow a human owner at a remote location to release a small food treat to a pet. Another important teaching of this invention is an apparatus and a method to allow audiovisual communication remotely between a pet and an owner. Another important teaching of this invention is a phone with soft fuzzy or soft pliable durable sections for pet licking or chewing. The following descriptions refer to the technical drawings that are part of the patent. The number refer to specific numbered parts of the machinery, as shown in those technical drawings. Figure 1 shows the basic apparatus of the invention. The animal phone, 10, comprises a video monitor or liquid crystal or other video display, 12, to show the owner's face and also comprises a speaker, 14, to perform the speakerphone functions. Camera, 16, captures the pet image as well as any part of the room covered by the lens. A door, 18, covers a scent reservoir, which will allow the owner to release a scent to the animal by remote control. A treat reservoir is located inside the phone that would release a treat to a holding cup, 20, on the front of the phone. Paw pad, 22, is used by the animal to dial the phone to call the owner. The treat cup, 20, will hold a treat such as a food pellet, a little bone, and a bone cookie that was released also by remote control. Finally, the paw pad 22 is somewhat covered within the opening of the cave 30 to allow the animal to call the owner without too many accidental calls. Figure 3 shows the side view of the invention. We see the side view of the liquid crystal display 12 and the camera 16 to allow the owner to see the pet's image as well. Door 18 is used to shield a scented item 42 in the scent reservoir with fan motor 40 behind it. In operation, the owner would place a small item of scented clothing, such as a sock, into the scent reservoir. Upon remote command, the fan motor 40 would be enabled and the door 18 would open. This would blow the owner's scent through the door to the portal into the animal's face, giving the pet the reassurance of the owner's scent. The treat reservoir system comprises an input chute 54, which feeds into a reservoir area 56. On remote command, the solenoid 58 lifts up enough to allow the passage of one treat, which then falls down through chute 60 to sit outside into the treat reservoir cup 20. In this figure, we also see a side view of the paw pad 22 within the cutout area 30. Finally, at the top of the phone is a small keypad 52 to allow for the programming of various functions and, most importantly, the owner's work or mobile phone number. USB connector 50 could also be used to download an MP3 file of pleasant music or the owner's voice whenever the call did not go through. In an alternative embodiment, the verification that the call is from the owner is made by use of caller ID. This is not preferred as an owner may wish to call in from many different phone lines, including a hotel. If the pet answers the phone by depressing the paw switch, then at step 108, the method will turn on the fan. At step 110, it will activate the door solenoid to enable the animal to sense the scent of the owner. Research on the pet phone has led to very interesting results. At one location was a yellow Labrador retriever and participating researchers, and at a remote location was a member of the owner's family with a good relationship with the dog. After the link was established, the dog was directed to the monitor with a large and very clear image of the human smiling at the dog. The dog was absolutely unimpressed, but the human was extremely pleased to see the remote image of the dog on her monitor. The study then advanced into an audio portion. The remote human called out the dog's name and spoke in a pleasant and energetic voice. The dog was immediately transformed and began wagging her tail and eagerly trying to find the exact location of the speaker. However, the remote human could not entice the dog to speak back. 
While it was clear that the dog was thrilled to hear the familiar voice, it had no interest in reciprocating. Nevertheless, the remote human was very satisfied to see the obvious happiness in the visual image of the dog. From this research comes the non-obvious law of pet telecommunication. The law is as follows. For successful pet telecommunication, the human must see and the pet must hear. As a corollary, there is a minimal utility in passing the human image to the pet and minimal utility in passing the pet's sounds to the human. Hence, an attractive and economical embodiment of the pet phone transmits the human voice and the pet video image, but does not transmit the human image. This saves the cost of a video display screen on the pet phone. Figure 5 discusses the basic method for the phone to make a call. In step 140, the method will monitor the paw switch. If the switch is depressed, then in step 142, the method will detect that. It will then go on to step 144 to check if the call limit per day has been exceeded. For example, the owner may limit the pet to calling four times a day. If this call limit is exceeded, then the method will ignore the paw switch depression. At step 146, the method will ask, is the call in excess of the hourly limit? If the answer is yes, then the method will go back into the monitoring mode. Figure 7 shows the method of the invention for dispensing a treat by remote command. At step 250, a call from the owner is received. At step 252, the method asks if the special code asterisk 11 pound sign is detected. If it is detected, then it goes to step 254. At this step, it will enable the treat reservoir solenoid to open, which will let a food treat go down the chute to the animal. You've been listening, if you've been listening, to Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh, then think. For details about everything we talked about today, visit our website at improbable.com. We could very much use your help so that we can make new podcast episodes and other improbable and ignobel stuff. Details are at our website and at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash improbable research. If you become an improbable donor, you will get special access to improbable things. I'm Mark Abrams. Today, Jean Burko Gleason, Chris Katsapas, Maggie Letvin, Richard Baguley, and Melissa Franklin lent their voices, expertise, opinions, and personal quirks with dramatic readings from research studies you may have overlooked. It's possible that Seth Glicksman is the improbable production assistant. It's possible that the mysterious John Shedler, or maybe the subterranean Bruce Petchek, did the audio engineering of this episode. Next time on this podcast, we'll look at something or other. Until then... Goodbye. 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 <laughs>